Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join Messiah's Upper Room Bible Study Class led by Pastor Jim Adi. This week, we continue our series over the Gospel of John. Enjoy. Okay, well, those of you, how many of you were here last week? Okay, so what was your takeaway from last week? Because today builds on that. And so this is, not, this, has, this is no reflection on who the teacher was or anything like that. It's actually more of a reflection on, you know, like, do you actually remember what we talk about in here? So uh, what was your takeaway from last week? Do you remember what the focus was? Oh, this is sad. <laughs> you can be comforted by the fact that when I asked that question, it, and, and I did the teaching, nobody remembers that either, yeah. So remember the focus was, it, part, of it, part of this is I think in some sense a, uh, a, a bit of a fascination that I have with these, ca- these encounters, and, and maybe that's too benign a word, I, I think confrontations is a better word, to describe what's going on between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees. And why is it that the Sabbath and following the regulations of the Sabbath was such a big deal? And so that's a little bit of, of, of where the, the conversation is going because we keep seeing Jesus doing what? He's doing amazing things. He's, he's healing people. He's, he's, uh, uh, the blind guy is what we're talking about here, but there was the paralytic. Uh, uh, in other Gospels, there's a guy with a withered hand, and he's doing it on the Sabbath. And so there's no question that Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. It's not like it's just, oh, it just happened to be on the Sabbath that these people who had difficulties in life came up to him. Because there are all sorts of opportunities that he has to do good things. But when he does it on the Sabbath, that raises the ire of the scribes and the Pharisees. So there's a little bit of fascination on my part to be asking the question, what is it about the Sabbath that more, maybe in, in some sense more than the others, the four to ten, what is it about the Sabbath that seems to be elevated in importance uh, in the minds of the scribes and the Pharisees and then uh, in, in terms of Jewish society that is such a big deal? Why is number three? So what is number three, just so we can recall our confirmation days? What is number three? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. All right, and so just uh, again, thinking out loud here a little bit, what does it mean to keep it holy? Are we talking Old Testament or New Testament? We're talking about Christian life. What, what, is, what does it mean to keep it holy? Because the application is not just from the Old Testament, it's also to today. What does it mean to keep something holy? What, what does the word holy mean? The Senate decides the worship of God. Pardon? To set it aside for the worship of God. So, but the word holy means it's something that's consecrated for special use. I mean, in a general way, that's what it is, yeah. But we're using it, it in terms of the third commandment, is that this is a day that God designed for us in order that we would benefit from it. And the benefit would certainly include worship, absolutely worship. But what else? What else is included in that commandment? Day of Day of rest. Okay, now the question would be, okay, what does rest mean and what does it consist of? And then you think, what has it become in people's minds today? Because what rest was in the Old Testament and the New Testament and what Americans today are thinking rest is, 
is like, whoa, are they even related? Yeah, Tim. Well, thinking back to the catechism, um, under the third commandment of remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy, uh, we know we keep this when we uh, rejoice in the preaching of the word, and we know we're breaking it when we're rejecting uh, or despising the teaching of the word of God, and that's where we find our rest is in the grace. So that's right. So rest has to do with celebrating your forgiveness rejoicing in your relationship with God. See, it's a, it's a spiritual rest. Now, is there also physical rest that's involved? Yeah, because even in the Old Testament, the, uh, the uh, application was the idea that, well, as God rested after creating for seven days, well, you know, and that's always kind of one of those things like, well, gee, what was God doing, you know, if he was resting? You know, because God is like always doing stuff. So what does that mean, that he rested? But it's the idea of taking the break from work, right? And, and we, many of us work, you know. What is it about work or the nature of work where God would say, you need a day where you're not doing that? What is it about work? It, one of the things about work is that it can be all-consuming. Have you noticed that? Like, how many of you, like, on whatever is your day off, let's say that you have one. Do you think of it as a wasted day? (laughs) Have you ever thought it? See, highly productive people have the, that's the hardest thing to do is they're like, what does rest mean? And and it's this idea that I got to be doing something, you know, well, there's got to be something I can do. So like, for example, Friday is my day off. Well, first of all, when I found out that Friday would be my day off, I told my wife that Friday would be my day off. And she said, oh, good. <laughs> and so I was thinking, but, oh, day of, day of rest, you know, all that, whatever it would be. But even for me, a day of rest is, the day off is, okay, I'm not coming to Plano, I'm not doing counseling. What am I going to do with myself? I mean, see, that's, I mean, that's just the mindset that, that happens when we think of that. Do what? You're digging in the dirt. Well, that is what I thought I would be doing on my day off. Yes, yes. And then I was told, well, it's not just your day off. (laughs) It's our day off, off, yes. And so then our day off included like all the things. Now, again, part of it is rest from my everyday work. And I happen to be kind of one of those weird people that enjoy doing other things. So... I can have fun digging in the dirt. I can have fun painting a, a, a door. You know, that, to me, that's fun. But it still is not exactly what God had in store when you think in terms of work. The other thing is that, and it's a trap that a lot of um, church workers fall into, is that the day that's the Sabbath for you is a work day for me. Does that make sense? Yeah, but think about that. And so, you know, from that perspective, it's like, well, how do, what, how do I do my Sabbath? And Pastor Wilmer and I, we kind of talked about this a little bit too. It's just, well, then does that mean that you have a Sabbath on a different day than everybody else? Well, maybe, but it's not going to include worship because worship is when we come here, right? And i do not looking to join another church while I'm working here, so... You know, so you're figuring out how to do that. And so to some degree, from a church work perspective, you kind of have to find or create your Sabbath in the midst of when you're doing your work. And that's kind of how I do it. So I will have moments of Sabbath 
in the worship service. To some degree, I have it in here. Even though I'm working in here, I'm engaging with you, and to me that's fun. I kind of consider this fun in here. That's work over there, but this is fun. But it, it's trying to figure out how to find those connected, those, those moments of connection with God in terms of that spiritual walk that you have, that I have. How do you do it uh, at the same time that what you're doing is the task of leading worship or teaching or whatever it is that we're doing? Yeah. Let me put it in a, in a perspective of exercise. Uh-oh. Um, <laughs> Thanks, Carl. I feel guilty enough as it is. Yeah. Everybody, everybody has at one time in their life exercise. If you do the same exercise, the same ones, same set of maybe five exercises, every day for, the, for on and on and on and on, and on yeah. your muscles get tired and your muscles get stale. If you alternate this set of exercises for an opposite set of exercises, and Pastor Wilmer should relate to this, yeah, Suddenly, he's the king of exercise. While this, you're letting those muscles rest, they're being refreshed while the others are getting their exercise. Mm-hmm. So God's purpose was to give us that time to refresh. Yeah. Well, I hope that put it in some <laughs> perspective for some. Yeah, not for me, but... but <laughs> yeah, no, that... But, like you standing up the bat and swinging tw- 20 times and, and hitting the ball, but on the 21st time, you wouldn't have the energy left. Yeah, right. that's right. Yeah, that's right. Well, it's just, again, it, when you, it, I think in some sense, each of us has to figure out a way to do that. But the beauty of it is that God saw that you can't work seven days a week. You can't, I mean, some people do, but, but eventually you'll burn out. Eventually you, you wear yourself down. Eventually your immune system collapses and you get sick. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of things that happen to us physically uh, and physiologically if we don't include in our lives a day of rest. And what then, if you take that in a spiritual sense, what happens to you if there's no thought in your life that includes your walk with God? That your time in the Word, you're, you're joining with other Christians in terms of worship, you're partaking of the sacrament, you know, all those kinds of things, what does that do to your life and the, the, the wellness of your life? And then what does that do to your spiritual walk as well? And so I think that's the question that is sort of the underpinning of what we're talking about in terms of the, of the third commandment. And, you know, I mean, most of us that are in my age group, uh, we all remember when Sunday was the sacred day. Remember that? We all remember when nothing else happens in terms of our culture and our society uh, on Sundays. Um, sports teams uh, didn't, uh, you know, I mean, I'm talking about local sports. I mean, the Cowboys, of course, that's part of our religion. But um, as far as like uh, kids' sports and, and activities, there wasn't uh, a, any competition to church stuff. And so church stuff would, would happen. The youth group would meet or Wather League for people that are older. They would all meet on Sundays, and that was the, the gathering place. That was the place where people got together to do stuff. And then gradually what started to happen was that uh, more and more competition came along and was allowed to come along. And now we're hard-pressed to figure out when can you gather kids together, when you can, can you gather parents together for those activities, 
uh, and not hear the thing, well, we're so busy, and well, my kid has this, and my group has that. And then now it's a, it's, it's a competitive thing, and this is something that affects um, everybody, not just our church, but sure, uh, certainly does affect our church. Okay? So um, we're talking lots and lots about the third commandment, and what we're seeing in our lesson, which I think we can finally get to here this morning, is this issue in terms of is it, good, is it okay for uh, Christians, and in this case Jesus, to do good to help somebody on the Sabbath in the eyes of the scribes and the Pharisees? That's the other thing we want to remember, is that not all the Jews bought into the rigid legalism of the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees was a, was a kind of a group, a sect, if you will, and they had great power in, uh, in that society, in that culture, but they were not necessarily representative of all of the people. They, they saw themselves as kind of the, uh, uh, the religious police, and, and their deal was to go around and make sure that everybody's following all the religious rules, follow all the laws. How many of the laws were uh, created by the, uh, the, not the priests, but by the... Uh, uh, let's just say religious authorities, off of the Ten Commandments. Do you remember how many there were? 613. 613. So, so at, and you think, how in the world did they go from Ten Commandments to 613? Okay, so I did a little bit of research on that, and what I found out was, was that, the, that these were the teachings of the rabbis that were based on questions that people would come to the rabbis and say, well, like, okay, on the Sabbath, um, I know that it's a day of rest, but, you know, my mother is very sick, and I have to run to the pharmacy to get some medicine for her, and so I just want to know if I get in my, uh, if I get on my chariot and I ride over to the pharmacy and get the medicine, am I guilty of breaking that commandment? See, people took it real seriously. And they said, well, I don't want to do anything that would be displeasing to God. I don't, I don't want to, to dishonor the memory of what he did for me. So tell me, rabbi, tell me, pastor, tell me, elder of the church, what am, what am I supposed to do? And so then what would happen is people would come and ask those questions, and then the rabbis would all get together and they would debate. And they would say, well oh, gosh, that's a good question. I, we never even thought of that question. So they would talk about it like a lot of us do. And they would say, well, okay, if, if the pharmacy is across town, that would be an issue because that's a long ways away and you're probably going to break a sweat and get your horse ready and all that kind of thing. But if the, if the pharmacy is like just around the corner, then it would be okay to do that. See, we look, at, we look at the 613 and we go, oh, that's terrible. How could they do that to God's law? But these, were, these came out of the practical questions that people had because they were worried about dishonoring God and making sure that they followed the commandments as is, right? But the problem is by the time Jesus came along, the 613 became kind of like the thou shalt. They had the same... They carried the same weight as the Ten Commandments. So all of a sudden now, if you do any of those things, you're guilty of breaking the commandment. Does that make sense? Yeah, and so I, again, I think we can have a little bit of empathy for that 
Because who doesn't get questions? You know, if you're a teacher and you say, well, here's how it's going to be in the classroom, you know, boom, boom, boom. Then you have a student or a parent will come and say, yeah, but what about this situation? This situation is so unique. I just know it would never happen to anybody else but my kid. And so then what are you left to do? You have to go, well, well, we better meet with the staff to figure out or the department to figure out is that going to be okay or not. And that's where all this came from. Yeah. I was talking to a friend of mine a while back who uh, also believes in faith and good works is what saves us. Um, and we were talking about tithing, and he was saying, well, should I tithe before or after taxes? Sure. And I'm sitting there and saying, I always have a saying, check your heart, because the fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. Uh, and we know what love is, because love is fulfillment of the law. And I was asking him, well, are you asking that question because you think, okay, by if I tithe the wrong way, it's going to count against me, or do we tithe because we do it out of the generosity of our heart and out of the abundance of our heart. Because if our, we're doing something out of love, we're fulfilling the law. If we're questioning our works, then I, that's where I say our heart isn't necessarily in the right spot. So if you think about it from that perspective, and we go back to the commandments, what you know, John so beautifully put this uh, diagram up here, um, is that just... Uh, Question here is the triangle is that God or what is that triangle? So that is connection with, with your relationship with God with how you live your life. So this is the connector, right. okay. And then the scribble does that mean anything? <laughs> it's iron. It's uh, you know, oh, it's iron. Okay, it's uh, good. Okay, good. I just did, I didn't. Okay, so what I've what I've added is the umbrella over the top. Okay, and the umbrella over the top is the reminder thinking of heart is why do we do this? See, because it came, for the, the scribes and the Pharisees, it came down to, okay, we all agree we should do these things, right? Everybody in the room would say, yeah, okay, we're going to do these things. But the question is, what's your motive for doing it? Why, why are you doing it? And the problem that, that sort of surfaced was, was that what was being emphasized was to the importance of doing it and what was not even being mentioned was why. And so when you don't talk about why you do something, then what happens over time is nobody knows why. Right? Well, so we go back to the very beginning in Exodus. Okay, what was the context of when God gave those commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai? Have you ever looked at the preface to the commandments? It talks about what? It talks about God's deliverance of the people. I, the Lord your God, love you. I've taken you out of Egypt, and now you get to be not slaves but free. And this is what a free life looks like. So it's given in the context of the gospel. It's given in the context of God's love for us. And then the emphasis of all of this is in gratitude for what God has done for us. This is how we worship him and how we worship, each, how we uh, treat or serve each other. So see, what happens if you take the gospel as the motive out of the picture, and now you're only focused in on what you should do with your life? Then it just becomes a list of rules, right? 
And there's no sense of, I'm doing this out of gratitude. I'm doing this, even the tithing question or the worship question or the whatever the question would be in terms of your life. If you take the gospel out of it, then it just becomes a guilt-inducing issue. Well, you better do it or what? Or else, right? And then we'd start worrying about, well, am I doing it the right way? And did I do it enough? And gee, what if I... What if I had a moment of weakness and thought, well, I better pay all my taxes because, you know, if I don't, the IRS is going to come take all my money away and my house and everything else, so I better just do that first. Oh my gosh, I feel guilty because now I'm not worshiping God and putting Him first. See, that's what happens when you only focus on this without this. And so what's ironic is Jesus, who Himself is the gospel, came into the scene, and all he's saying to them is, let's go back to why this was given in the first place. So that you then can have gratitude, and in gratitude, gratitude is what motivates true generosity. And now we're going to talk about the heart, but we're not going to talk about it just from an obedience perspective. We're going to talk about it from the perspective of this is a response to God loving me. Yeah. One of the key takeaways from last week, John. Oh, was there a good takeaway from last week? Good. Was that our society generally has erased the vertical line. Uh, in our focus, we've taken God, and, you know, serving God and our neighbor out of it in the first three commandments. Right. And it's now prideful. It's serving ourselves. Yes. That was really a big takeaway. There's a big concern in among uh, church churchmen, church people, you know us, and certainly clergy in uh, in the U.S. of the effect that individualism, American individualism, is having on the idea that we are the body of Christ. If we talk about ourselves as the body of Christ, what does that mean? We are a we. We are not a me. But American individualism focuses a great deal on, on the fact that I am a me. And so as a me, whose interests am I most likely to be interested in serving? Mine, right? And if it works out that serving my interest helps you, well, I'm very happy about that. But what if serving my interests is, creates hassle for you? Or what if it doesn't even serve your interests? Then I'm inclined to say, well, you'll just have to get over it. Grow up. Okay? I mean, that's, that's kind of the attitude. And so there is a great concern about that in terms of what has happened to the we. The, the, these commandments are very much about the we. We are in this together. We have each other's back. We are the body of Christ. Nobody can say, one member cannot say to the other member, we don't have need of you or uh, you don't belong here. And so what Carl's pointing out is, is that for a lot of people, they're perfectly content to sever this from this. That commandments 4 through 10, which have to do with um, how you treat your neighbor, how we treat each other, right? Serving the neighbor, etc. Is that you can do this just fine without this. Is that true or false? False. If you serve that, you have no point of reference for how you treat your neighbor or anything else. You That's have correct. No fixed point in in the transcendental yeah. thought. 
so you're just floating around on preferences and feelings. Mm-hmm. And the problem with that is, what if I don't feel today like serving my neighbor? Because by golly, I remember six things that my neighbor did to me five years ago, and we still haven't worked that out. And so because of that, I don't feel like doing this, 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 and this. Or what if I don't, what if the neighbor did something so bad to me that I say to myself, there's no way that I could forgive that person and there's no way that I could treat that person decently because if I do, that's the same as condoning what that person did to me. See, if you sever this from it, you're also severing this from it. This and this are connected. And the problem is, is that then what strength am I going to draw on to do the hard thing like forgiving somebody or like treating someone with kindness or like praying for your enemy. If you don't have this, then what will give you the power to do this? What will you be leaning on to do this? Your own strength or uh, some obligation you feel in doing it, right? But there will be, no, there will be nothing beyond you that would... Um, empower you to be able to do that. See, so that's why, again, the linkage here is so critical between commandments 1, 2, and 3 and uh, commandments 4 to 10. Again, so Jesus, see, Jesus is the gospel. He's coming in and he's saying to, uh, to them that uh, the Sabbath itself was intended to be a gift for people so that people could rejoice in the relationship they have with God, but then also so that they could be filled with the power, the grace power they need in order to do the hard stuff which is down here. And, and I don't think any of us would disagree. Um, to some degree, this is, you know, living your life every day with other people can be a kind of a pain, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. And you think, what is it that would help us or what is it that will empower us to be able to live at peace with one another, especially if we're not feeling peaceful. Okay? Yeah. So let's get into the lesson for today. I keep saying that. <laughs> this is always, this is a kind of a occupational hazard when I come back from a, a trip or something like that. I'm, I'm trying to find my footing. And it's, it's n- nothing in terms of what, uh, what John did for us. Okay? So again, so remember the context. Jesus healed the blind man. On, uh, on the Sabbath. And part of the thing was the question that the disciples wanted to know was why is the guy blind in the first place? Right? So a bad thing had happened to him and his family. He was born blind and the, the prevailing thought of the day was well then the reason why this guy was born blind is because his parents sinned or somebody in his family tree sinned or maybe even the man himself somehow sinned and then that's the punishment for, uh, for, that, uh, for that sin. So, so Jesus heals the blind man on the Sabbath, and now the scribes and the Pharisees are very upset. So notice in verse 16 uh, and 17, some of the Pharisees said, this man, now he's talking about Jesus here, not the blind guy, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. 
So again, they said to the blind man, of course, he's not blind now, but he's still being identified that way. They said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And the man said, he is a prophet. So let's go down to verse 18 and following. The Jews did not believe, this is the scribes and the Pharisees, okay? The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, the scribes and the Pharisees. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Now it's kind of interesting when you look at the response that the parents gave to the inquisitors. Okay, it's almost like this inquisition now. We, we demand to know and we want to be absolutely sure that this is in fact the same guy that uh, was born blind who now can see. And so what's interesting is that when you look at the response of the parents, they give the perfect witness to the antagonists who had no intention whatsoever of believing in Jesus or celebrating this amazing gift that has occurred, that, 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 that's the farthest thing from their mind. But notice their witness. There's four things that they do. And we can sort of take a little bit from this, I think, in the sense that we live in a society and a culture today that is quite antagonistic toward Christianity. So notice the first thing they do. They speak only of what they know. So what did they know? We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. They don't add anything extra to it. They just are talking about what they know. The second thing is they do not attempt to explain how the miracle occurred. They said, well, how he sees, we don't know. I mean, it's like the perfect thing. They're not, you know, they're not trying to convince the antagonists that somehow they're wrong or anything like that. They're just answering the questions. Thirdly, they do not openly challenge the antagonist's position, but point them to the one who received the miracle. Ask him, he is of age, he can speak for himself. So it's interesting that they don't try to speak for him. They say, go ask the one who has benefited from the miracle. And then fourthly, they accepted the reality that no matter what they said, it was not going to change the antagonist's mind and that then any change of mind would have to come from God. So think about that with respect to uh, people that you may have encountered that at, are either on the worst case are antagonistic toward Christianity or Christians in general, um, or maybe just in, in some sense indifferent to it. You know, There's all different kinds of of resistance that people have to, uh, to the faith and to Christianity, and we certainly see a wide spectrum of that. When you think about it from that perspective, and you're the one who is on the hot seat with that person, and that person is coming to you and sort of maybe wanting from you some explanation for 
hypocrisy in the church or, you know, whatever it is that happens to be the, the hot button that they're attempting to push. How many times have you found yourself trying to think in terms of what's the, what, am I, what can I say in this moment that will change their mind? What, in what way can I present the faith that will cause them to move from being antagonistic to uh, having faith, or from being indifferent to having faith in Jesus? Have you ever fretted over the right thing to say or the best thing to say? Is this, a, is this something that you've struggled with? I, I have too, yeah. It's interesting here... They're not attempting to change the Pharisees or the scribes' mind. And there's some sense of a lesson, maybe perhaps, that we can learn from that. Because at the end of the day, who's the one who changes people? God does. Yeah. Now, to be sure, we get to share the gospel with people. We do get to talk about Jesus. We do get to talk about what God has done for us, right? But sometimes I think that the fretting or the worrying that we do about, oh my gosh, I better say the right thing, or we think of, you know, at the very least, I better not say the wrong thing, right? Um, that somehow that, um, that that's up to us. At the end of the day, who changes people? God does, yeah, the Holy Spirit does, yeah. And so what's interesting also in this, uh, in this account is that now a turning point is occurring. And the turning point now is, is that it's not just Jesus and his immediate disciples who are impacted by the presence of Jesus and the rejection he's receiving. Because what the story tells us is the Jews had decreed what? That anybody who confesses that Jesus is the Savior or that he is this amazing person uh, would be subject to what sort of consequence? They'd be put out of the synagogue. Yeah, so now that the, the, the net is much greater, the, 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 the breadth of this is much greater. It's not just Jesus, it's not just the 12, but now it's anybody who would, uh, would publicly uh, align themselves with Jesus was going to be uh, uh, thrown out of, out of the synagogue. And so uh, you can see where the rejection of Jesus now is taking a more a, a harder or a firmer uh, firmer position. Okay, we have a couple minutes left. Uh, let's go to the next part, and then um, we'll pick it up uh, pick it up next next time as well. Verse twenty four. So the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, "Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner." He answered, "Whether he is a sinner, I don't know." One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. I wonder if he broke into a singing of Amazing Grace at that moment. Yeah. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciple? <laughs> I can just hear the sarcasm of that. No! I, th I think this was the perfect ploy because they're coming at him with these, you know, accusations and, and how can this be? And, and he already figured out that they're not going to change, they're not changing their mind. He already figured that out. And so then what does he do? He completely turns it on, the, on its heel and he goes, do you want to be his disciple too? I mean, I could just see that perfect moment 
And they probably would not have wanted to, uh, uh, to know. What, they didn't know what to do. So verse 28 says what? And they what? Oh, they were disgusted. Yeah, reviled is probably the nice uh, English word there. They were, they were disgusted. They, the, their contempt for him now is taking a personal, a personal turn. So they said, well, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Now we get a little sarcasm, I think. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? And so they cast him out. So that tells you where they, their view, right, of the guy being born blind, he must have done sin. He was born in sin, his parents did sin, so now, you know, how in the world can you... Uh, teach us. So it's interesting that they said, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. The irony is, is that they demanded that this man give honor to God by submitting to their legalism while they themselves were dishonoring God in their refusal to believe in the gospel. So the very thing that they were accusing him of, they were condemning themselves. And so again, I like the fact that how this guy handled this, this moment. And you think, wow, how did this guy who had been born blind, probably on some level might have been a, one of the people begging, you know, maybe not educated, and look at the response that he gives by virtue of the Holy Spirit, we would say, to this, uh, to this situation. So what does he do? He, number one, speaks only what he knows, right? Well, what does he know? I was born blind and now I see, right? That's, that's what he knows. He doesn't argue, but he simply states the obvious. I've told you already. And then he shifts the conversation by asking questions, do you also want to become his disciple? I can't wait to see this on, on social media sometime when somebody's asking all these questions with uh, a little bit of contempt that's uh, mixed in there, maybe some, uh, uh, some genuine confusion. Um, and, and one of us gets to respond, these are wonderful questions. Do you want to become his disciple too? I mean, this, <laughs> this, would, be, uh, this would be fantastic. Okay, well, what we're going to do is we're going to stop here because I have to leave fun time and go to work, and uh, we'll, pick it up, uh, we'll pick it up next time. But I invite you to kind of look at some of the verses that I have here, the 1 Corinthians verses. Um, again, thinking in terms of the amazing way that God does what he does. Okay, so let's, uh, let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, we, <clears throat> we thank you for our time together. We thank you for the, the gift of your word. And we also thank you for the opportunity to think with gratitude of all that you have done for us. And the opportunity that we have to live a, an obedient life is really an opportunity to live a grateful life. So help gratefulness, Lord and humility, and, and generosity, all those things that are responses to what you've done for us, help those permeate our lives each and every day. Lord, we also think about what's going on in our world with the uh, coronavirus, 
And uh, people, uh, many people feeling very uncertain about it, very anxious about it. Um, Lord, help us as the Christian community to uh, certainly be responsible with it, to have good common sense, but at the same time to not let the anxiety that's going on in the world be the thing that determines how we uh, treat each other, the, the service that we have an opportunity to give to each other. So help us be mindful of that, at the same time to trust in you each day for the opportunity that we have to serve in gratitude for what you've done for us. Watch over us uh, this week, dear Lord. Be with us. Keep us safe and healthy until we're together again. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room. Here at Messiah Lutheran Church, our mission statement is sharing his light. That means sharing the light that is Jesus Christ and telling others about his gospel. If you want to join us in that mission, please share this podcast with someone that may want to come and better know the light of Jesus. Use one of our past episodes as a starting point to start a discussion with someone, or use a past series as a personal Bible study or devotional for your family or small group. If we've given any value to you at all, consider leaving this podcast a rating and review on iTunes. That will help us climb the iTunes rankings so we may better spread the reassuring good news of Jesus Christ and continue to share his light with anyone willing to listen. Thank you again so much for listening, and until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.